draw your attention to a passage in the New Testament. It's found in the book of Romans. If you'll turn there, Romans chapter 5. I believe this is on page 942. If you're using one of the Bibles you find on a chair around you, Romans chapter 5. I'm just going to read the first two verses, although this morning I'm going to focus only on the first verse. These two verses really go together as a unit. Romans chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Let's pray before we look into these words. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for the freedom we have to be here today. Thank you that though we come out of weeks that are a whirlwind of activities and thoughts and pressures and emotions, that you call us into a place like this of worship that is sort of a sanctioned retreat in which you invite us to slow down the RPMs of our hearts that are running so quickly and to listen to your word. We know that uh, we are told in your word that the host of heaven worship you around your throne. And you invite us to be a part of that in our own singing and our prayer, to bring our hearts to you, not just our minds. And we pray that this morning you would speak to us in the way that we need. And so we ask that you would open this passage to our understanding and we pray for the guidance and ministry of your Holy Spirit to open us so that that we might be receptive to your word when we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I had the privilege of knowing uh, a couple over, I guess you'd say, the last half of their married life. I met them in later middle age, and when I first met them, they were a mess. Their relationship was marked by affairs and drug abuse, and mistreatment, and neglect of the home, and of the children, and all of the resulting anger and resentment that goes along with all of those things. And I was a part of their walk in the last half of their life, in their twilight years, and eventually their deaths. And, And they, on this journey, experienced reconciliation, and conversion, and joy, and freedom, and peace. And I I can picture them in my mind as I remember them. At the end of their lives, they were always holding hands and laughing and helping each other uh, until one passed away and then the other one passed away. And that picture is indelibly imprinted on my mind. It's what really is pictured in this verse when it talks about peace with God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And the word therefore is important. It tells us that he's basing what he's going to say on something that went previous to that. And this is a key verse that's the beginning of a whole new section in the letter uh, to the church in Rome. And and it follows on the first major section of the book, which is about uh, justification. And so he says, therefore, since we have been justified. And that whole section is a legal term. That word is a legal term, justification. And it, it, it is meant to kind of evoke in us a kind of image. 
and experience that we think of, of the relationship between God and a human being. And it pictures God as a righteous judge in a courtroom. And we, guilty sinners, are brought before this righteous judge. We're accused of rebellion against his holy law. And to be justified means to be acquitted. It means that in that image, the bar or the gavel comes down and it says this person is not guilty and we receive this according to the first four chapters in only one way. It's because of Jesus Christ and so it's by trusting in Christ as our substitute that we have this acquittal before the throne of God. Now he turns to a different subject beginning in chapter 5 and it uses an entirely different picture. It's not a legal term. It's not a, a courtroom drama. It, it instead is based on the word that he's going to use later in the passage, reconciliation. And it, rather than picturing a judge in a criminal in a courtroom, it, it's like a father and a daughter or two friends or two lovers who uh, have been estranged from one another, and now they're brought back into a harmonious relationship. So it's a relational term. And rather than guilt and acquittal, he's thinking now in terms of estrangement and reunion. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning I want to ask for just a few minutes, what is this peace of God what kind of peace are we talking about? What does it mean for a person to experience that peace? What does it look like in a person's life? What does it feel like to have peace with God? And essentially, there's three things that lie behind this that are, that are important to uncover and understand in order to begin to enter into what it means to experience it. The first one is, something about God has changed so that there can be peace. Something about God changes um, this peace changes something about ourselves, and this peace changes something inside ourselves. So first, something about God. Something about God had to be changed in order for there to be peace between God and any human being. And this is really hard, I find, for people in America to get, America to get their arms around, their minds around, because we're kind of brought up, we have to admit, with sort of an entitlement view of God. God is like the kindly grandfather that we probably really didn't have. But, you know, the kindly grandfather, who's there for us? And he's, he, he is someone we can call on at any time, and he'll rush to our aid. And, of course, he's very important, so we don't go to him about mundane things in life. We go to him about the important things of sickness and pain and hurt and big decisions we need to make. And most of us, most of the time, don't think too much beyond that. God is someone who's there for us when we need him. We think of him as being big, but we don't think of him as being really powerful. And the God of the Bible presents himself in very different terms than that, and it's important for us to understand that. The, the Bible presents God as having two main characteristics, at least in his relationship with the things that he's created. On one side is his justice, and the other side is his love. Those are the two main things that relate to us. But to be sure, we have to understand those two things are really just an outgrowth they, they impact us because of a more essential characteristic of God, but that both of them are like displays of, and that's God's holiness. God is essentially holy so that his justice is a holy justice, and his love is a holy kind of love. 
that comes out of his moral perfection. And God's holy justice is, um, it, it demands, you might say, that all that is morally unlike him be punished or be separated from him. That's, that's hard to grasp, but God did not create sin. And his very character protests against sin. I I like to think of it as a completely sterile environment, like a a hospital room in which surgery is going to be performed, in which the highest degree of sterility is important to the person who's going to be lying there being operated on, and someone brings the AIDS virus into there. You you realize, no, that can't happen. You can't bring into something that you want to be sterile for the sake of a person. You can't bring something that is completely antithetical to health. And that's the image we're meant to have when we think of God. He despises sin. It is completely unlike him in every turn. So that he's determined to destroy it, to rid his presence of it completely. And at the same time, we are told... His holy love draws him to be unwilling to let people go. He loves people. He's determined to save them. And the Bible presents these two characteristics, God's love and his justice, as being on a collision course. In fact, much of the Old Testament kind of ponders the relationship between these two things. How can they both be maintained at the same time? How can sin be destroyed, the sinner be punished, and at the same time, God's loving intention to bless people be upheld? And that's what the gospel is all about, of course. That's what uh, Christ is about. It's about making peace with God. And the first thing that peace with God means is that the awful reality of God's anger against sin is pacified. That's what happened in the cross. The awful reality of God's anger against sin had to be satisfied in some way. Now he develops this theme later in verse 10, or verse 9. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him, by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. If while we were enemies, and many people get the idea, well, of course, we were enemies, like we estranged ourselves from God, but God, how could God ever be the enemy of human beings? We hated him, God didn't hate us, how could God... Does love ever be tinged with any kind of aversion or disapproval of people? But I have to tell you, that won't stand in light of what the Bible teaches because it doesn't consider the perfect holiness of God. God's very nature as the moral governor of the universe is repelled by sin. He didn't create sin, and he didn't create us to be sinful. But what happens is the claims of God's infinite holiness on sinful human beings was upheld at the cross. And at the same time, his holy love towards them was also fulfilled. And you might say they met and they were reconciled at the cross where Jesus satisfied the loving character of God by taking the suffering on himself. So he became our substitute. And so some people get the idea, well, isn't that kind of a pagan thing, a a despotic God uh, who um, hates the world? He he pours out his anger on an innocent victim. And we seem to know enough of that in society, and we don't really want to have anything to do with that. But that's not what the Bible asserts. The Bible doesn't say God so hated the world 
that he, he killed his son in place. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the reason we can say that is what happened on the cross was not like a third party, in a sense, standing between God and humanity. I know it's difficult to grasp the Trinity, but the Bible says in Christ, God himself was reconciling people to himself. In other words, it's the self-substitution of God on the cross, taking the suffering on himself in order to restore us to himself. In Christ on the cross, God was doing the work, suffering the punishment himself in our place. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's anger against sin and against sinners was pacified at the cross so that anyone who comes to Jesus, God through Jesus, finds God's arms open wide, ready to receive them, because he himself has dealt with the estrangement on his side. His anger was taken care of, completely satisfied, poured out. But there's something else we need to think about, because this estrangement is on two sides. It's not only God's holy anger against sin, but it is also an estrangement on our side that has to be dealt with. And so not only was was God's anger taken care of on the cross, but we'd have to say also, The second thing is the raging hostility of our own rebellion against the God who claims our allegiance was reduced to submission at the cross. That is, God's enmity had to be resolved, but ours did as well. Our hostility to God had to be resolved. Now this, again, I find is a concept that people uh, at times have real difficulty understanding. And I I find that it's, it's like one group of people, maybe half you could say, can understand what this idea is that the raging hostility of our hearts that rages against the claims of a God who who claims our allegiance, that had to be dealt with. They can understand that. And the other half kind of scratch their heads in bewilderment. I don't understand what you're talking about in practical terms. And here's what I mean. When we walk through this life, I note that a large group of people, maybe half we would say, they kind of walk away from God. They rebel against him in various ways as they move through life. Now, it doesn't seem to be connected, at least in my experience, with whether or not they were brought up in a religious home. They can be brought up in a totally religious home or a totally irreligious home and have the same experience. But what happens in some people is there's this internal kind of sense of, I don't really like this. I I can make my own way in life. Thank you very much. My own father told me he was sent to church. And and, and he remembers sitting at... uh, when he was 12 years old, sitting in a Methodist church, and the guy up front was talking, and my father said, I thought to myself, I don't believe anything this man is saying. And, and he went on, and he lived that out. They say, I can make my own way in life. I don't need anyone to save me. And their life is either characterized just by a supreme indifference to God or by an active dislike of God. But what happens in life is there's another large group of people, let's say half, the other half of people, who hear me say something like the raging hostility of our hearts had to be subdued, and they say, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. I mean, maybe I can look back and I can see that in my teenage years there was some rebellion that was relatively mild, but I've always loved God and I've tried to live my life for him. I've had many people tell me that. I can't remember any raging hostility. That doesn't make any sense to me. And what they tend to think is that only irreligious people really need God. 
And to be honest, this is the side I was on. This is how I was brought up. Only irreligious people really need God. They need to be conquered by him. But religious people like them, they don't really need that. And what happens on that side is many people confuse um, complacency and compliance with faith. They think they're the same thing, but they're not. I knew a girl who grew up in our church, in fact, who was very compliant spiritually. She, she was the one who, when you know, she was eight or nine years old and the person next door got sick, wanted mommy to bake cookies so she could take them over to the person. She was the one who uh, always wanted to pray for people when there was a problem. When she got older and she went on mission trips, she was the one who served conspicuously and sacrificially, and she shared about it, and other people could hold her up as a model of spirituality. But here's what happened. When she was a young adult, a friend of hers was very tragically killed, and all of a sudden, it all ended. And she rebelled against God immediately and shook her fist at him and turned her back, and her love for God was revealed for what it really was. It was an attempt at self-salvation, at self-justification, After all, she thought, look how good I've been to God, and now look what he does. I mean, I've done all these things for him, tried to point people to him, be a good person, organize my life in order to try to live that way, and I didn't deserve God to do this to me. What kind of God does that? That's really what she said. And you might think I'm kind of harsh for suggesting that she was living to justify herself, but I think her story simply exposes that the gospel really is an alternative between two things. We tend to see only one side, but it's an alternative to two different errors that people make in life. On one hand, it's an alternative to uh, irreligion. It's alternative to those who rebel against God and they say, I don't want to listen to this God. He's a demanding God. I don't like the kind of rules that he has. I'm going to live my own way. But it's also an alternative to those who conceive of Christianity as simply a way to be good so that you can placate God and God will give you what you want. And what often happens on that side is the reality of life comes through and things don't happen the way you want them to be. And people die and relationships are broken and hearts are broken and all kinds of things happen. But on both sides, what they're saying is, I don't really need God. I don't need him to govern and rule my life. I can save myself. And at that point, the gospel is something that is in between those two things. It's about the self-substitution of God in our place. It's about the fact that he took the penalty for our sin on himself. And our sin means both rebellion against God and active immorality and those kinds of things. And it also means thinking that God is just kind of this person up in the sky that if we do the right things, he blesses us. And as long as we experience that, we feel good. But when we find out that that's not the way it works, that's not the kind of God he is, we reject him. His death provides a way between rebellion and compliant goodness. It's one that both receives the forgiveness that he gives and bows before him. Forgiveness for rebellion and forgiveness for the manipulative kind of attempt to gain his favor. Therefore, he says, since we have been justified with God, we have justified by faith, we have peace with God. That means, on one hand, something has changed inside the heart of God. 
His justice and his love have been reconciled so that his grace can shine through. On the other hand, it means that when we come to him through Jesus Christ, something changes inside of us. That is, the raging hostility of our wounded hearts and our sinful hearts is reduced to submission to him. And rather than seeing God as kind of this despotic king up there who just delights in telling people what to do, we see that he is a loving father who seeks to guide us to live in ways that will honor him. That leads to the third aspect of peace with God. It's not simply something changing inside of God or something changing on our side. It's a, a, an experience that that is meant to lead to of Tranquility, it's like the uncontrolled emotions of our hearts can become tranquil and peaceful before him. Now, this also is hard to understand. Both God's disgust for sin and our insurrection against God are, in one sense, objective. They kind of describe an estranged relationship. Now, I grew up under the threat of world communism and Russia and things like that. I I have this memory that Claire Holden, who's my age, and I have laughed about many times of being in first grade and having to hide under my chair. We had these drills, nuclear war drills, you know, and there's going to be bombs that come over the northern, you know, hemisphere and they rain down on us from Russia, those bad people. So you better get under your desk. And, you know, in first grade, I was pretty aware that that probably wasn't going to do a whole lot if there was actually a nuclear bomb. But the, the, the fact is, I knew that our great enemy was Russia. And I remember, probably not the event, but I remember seeing it on television afterwards when Nikita Khrushchev, the the head of the Soviet Union, took off his shoe at the United Nations and banged it on a desk and said, we will bury you. And, you know, I didn't really like those thoughts. And now 50 years later or more, it's like little has changed between the United States and Russia. People aren't banging things on desks anymore, it doesn't seem. They're nicer about it. But for me and most Americans, it really doesn't make much difference in how we live. The estrangement between our country and the country of Russia has little to do with what I do from day to day, how I think, how I feel. If we could reconcile the two countries, it would probably, in my experience, have little to do with how I live from day to day. And many people move through life in a state of cold war with God, and that's their experience. They don't think about it much because they figure it doesn't really have a lot to do with how I live from day to day, my general experience of life. But these words, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, are meant to describe the melting of that estrangement between the two sides. That is, God's hostility against sin is satisfying. Our hostility and enmity against God is reduced to submission, and it's meant to then lead to a very real experience of what that means. So this peace refers not simply to some objective things happening that change the conditions. It changes the very subjective way in which we feel. Now, it's not a general kind of peace. Sometimes in life you might momentarily have kind of a tranquility. Everything's going right. It might be because you took a medication that you're not very often used to taking, right? You know, and and so you, you take this and you feel at peace, at least momentarily. That's not what we're talking about here. It's not like taking a drug or having an experience of, of 
easing the pain of living in a fallen world. It doesn't turn us into people who just say, praise the Lord, you know, no matter what happens, praise the Lord. That's kind of offensive most of the time. It's peace with God, it says. You know, the hostility that was vertical has been resolved. God's arms are open wide. God receives you. You know that you are forgiven deeply in your soul because of what Jesus has done. There's no more enmity. The acceptance of Christ by faith is bowing of our hearts to God that say, we once thought of you as this despotic enemy of our souls, and now we experience you as our loving Father. It's a piece that says, if everything is right between my soul and God, then nothing can be completely wrong in the world. Now, I, 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 I can experience all kinds of pain. I can be wounded very deeply. I can have a heart broken. Things can wound me, but they can never kill me because I have peace with God, because he holds me in his hand, and he keeps me for himself. That's what it means. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which we do on the first Sunday of every month, what we're doing is we are are reaching out, so to speak, and desiring to experience the peace that God says that he gives to us. And we're understanding that Jesus' words there at the Last Supper apply to us, that his body was broken, his blood was shed for us. So let's pray that we will experience that this morning. Our gracious God, as we come before you, thank you for the way in which you have reconciled us to yourself, the way in which you resolved the tension that was in your own heart. Because of your holy justice and your holy love, we thank you that in Christ, God was reconciling sinners to himself. We thank you for that. We pray that you would help us, even this morning, as we share together as a church family in this, you would help us to experience that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.